This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. I think the main question that people have is, the creature, what is it that you want? Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. And I'm Trevor. And welcome to the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 287. Happy holidays to you and yours. Here we are once again. 2021. It feels like it went by so fast and so slow at the same time. <laughs> right? It's been a trip. Yeah. I wonder when this COVID stuff's going to be over with, guys. <sighs> it's so annoying. It's so unbelievably annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Out here in California, yeah. things are starting to close up yet again, right? Yeah. Our kid has a doctor's appointment at the hospital and they're like yep sorry you can't come we have to do it virtually which was kind of yeah crazy. back to that well oh, wow. on a brighter note we'll stay positive and we'll get over it like yeah. the horror fans we are all of us yeah. horror fans are used to dealing with the uh, insane yeah right <laughs> I remember yeah. zombies yeah plague outbreaks yeah. everything I remember reading that horror fans were more equipped to handle this pandemic than the average person that doesn't watch horror movies and that made me feel really good oh it makes sense it makes sense yeah, it does. what's on your holiday watch list are there any movies that jump out at you that you guys like to watch in particular of the horror genre variety over the uh, next couple days here we're, sp- we're heading right into christmas eve at time of recording this I always like to watch Anna and the Apocalypse. Ah, a Christmas That's classic, a right? Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. so fun. A Christmas zombie musical. 
It's really cute. Yeah, it's one of our favorites. Someone, one of the kids yeah. is at the door. Again? Hello? <laughs> Let me guess. There. Mom's in here. He's Thayer's watching Gremlins too, right? As we speak. Yeah. Hold on, she's going <laughs> to tend to uh, Thayer. What's up? Hey, oh, Thayer. Oh, oh, look what he has with him. Thayer, what do you got with you? You got Chucky. Oh. <laughs> wow. Chucky. Our four-year-old son has a Chucky that's just about the size of him, and he's brought it in here to the studio. How you doing, buddy? Good. How's Chucky doing? Good. Yes. What do you love about Chucky the most? He's my friend. He is your friend to the end, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> one of the great things, one of the many great things about about 2021 and the year in horror is that phenomenal Chucky TV series. So good. And we'll get a chance to he talk about... Pocket. He d- He's got a pocket in there? Yeah. Whoa. He Does he ever talk? Mm. No. Nope. No. Well, that's he a good move. thing. He can move. But he can take off his shoes. He can move his arm. That's pretty cute, buddy. Hi, buddy. <laughs> he's like, look, kid. Yeah. Make sure you tell nobody. Now we talk after hours. Right, I whisper exactly. sweet things in your ears, okay? <laughs> so we'll get a chance. We're going to get a chance to get together with our friends. At least that's the plan. Mike Mendez, Chelsea Stardust, Axel Carolyn, and do our traditional Boo Crew yeah. year-end wrap-up show. Right, bud? Yes. Yeah. So we're trying to get that together. That should be coming in the next couple of weeks here. But for now, at time of release, just this past weekend at a tremendous event in Pasadena, California, put on by the amazing folks at Midsummer Scream called Season Screamings. We were fortunate enough to have the honor of talking to the legendary Zach Galligan, award-winning star of Gremlins 1 and 2, the extraordinary Waxwork franchise, and more. He's going to tell you all about how he came to work on the holiday classic, a peek behind the magic of the insane practical creature effects, and so much more. Unfortunately, some gremlins got into the recorder and chewed up a few minutes from the end of the conversation where we discussed... Did you say gremlins? They did. They got into the recorder, bud. And yeah. mangled the last half of the yeah. of the chat. Oh no! And we were discussing, and that's when we discussed secrets of the Mogwai that's coming out in twenty twenty two. coming to the road. Whoa, Chucky! And that's an animated series, and and Zach was really excited about what it is. Basically, an origin story that's going to arrive soon. Chucky. Already renewed. Here, take take Chucky, take Chucky, go play with Chucky. Already renewed for a second season. And he mentioned, he was talking about how imperative it was to the future of the film franchise and possibly seeing a Gremlins 3, 4, 5, and 6 and beyond to watch and support Secrets of the Mogwai when it comes out. All right. God, I'm so excited for that. What about your, your holiday classic horror film that you like to check out? You know, I always go back to the 1970, what is 1973 Black Christmas? Yeah. Because the star of that movie was my first like on-screen crush. Margo Kidder. No. <laughs> very, very good guess, but no. <laughs> Olivia Hussey? Um, yes. Oh, wow. Now, I, I mean, I, that goes back to like seventh grade or sixth grade, oh, sixth grade, seventh grade um, English. When we watched Romeo and Juliet, she was Juliet. But she was so beautiful. And I was just like in love with this woman. Like, I don't know who she is, but she's great. You know, that movie was oh, that movie's from the 60s, 1960 something, you know, eight or something. And funny enough, you know, she's in Black Christmas, which is pretty much like the modern day, you know, kickoff for the horror, you know, the slasher genre, you know, it's a great Christmas movie. Just it's, it's well done. And even the ending is still debated today. You know, it's like, who is it? Who done it? She's just a great actress. And 
funny enough, we talked to her daughter this past year, India Isley, who, uh, you know, is a rising star. And hopefully we see her in more genre stuff. Oh, definitely. She's a, she's outstanding. And hopefully the rumor is that she's going to be we're going to be seeing more of her in the Underworld franchise, which would be amazing. You know, one of my favorite Christmas horror movies is, was actually one that we discovered recently, or more, more recently, was a Christmas horror story from 2015, the anthology film. Oh, yeah. That's great. Oh, yeah. So freaking that good. That's got that cover with Krampus fighting Santa. In fact, I want to watch that again over the next two days. Yeah, we can. Yeah, it's so, oh, that's so a, that's good. That's a great scene. That's a great scene. Yeah, and sure. it happens. It, it lives up to the, to the poster art, which it in does, a lot of movies, it, does. it doesn't, doesn't even, wouldn't even have that scene. <laughs> right right no it's fantastic yeah check it out william shatner's in that too canadian yeah, right. made as i understand was he a radio dj or something yep yep exactly and so did uh zach galligan played a radio dj alongside Corey taylor of slipknot in recent horror indie film bad candy oh that's, that's right that we also didn't get a chance to talk to zach about oh gosh that yeah. thing, that thing won 20 23 awards that thing won that's a lot that's amazing yeah it's incredible it's really really great but uh, yeah, that's okay. We'll do a future episode with Zach where we'll talk about that and the waxwork films because that's another thing. We had an awesome audience question about his work in waxwork. Remember we snuck it in at the very end. We were yeah. way over time. Yeah. yeah. And someone yeah. asked this amazing question because that was on our minds. We were going into this goal. We got to ask about waxwork. Waxwork one and two, Anthony Hickox, both incredible movies yeah remember he yep. asked if we were going to talk about it yeah. and we're like yes yes we got we're definitely covering wax but you know when you start doing these things and you start watching the clock and you you start into the conversation and a, a franchise like gremlins is so much to ask about so much yeah yeah chris, chris whalis creature effects to rick baker to working with phoebe cates and how he got the practice in one of his first roles crazy so there was a lot That's to amazing. cover and we just we smashed that clock into oblivion. So <laughs> sure did. hopefully more, more time, you know, definitely more time with Zach soon. And thank you all who came out to that event because yes. uh, it was great to see your faces. You know, it's just weird times of COVID I know, but it was great to see that. And if you were lucky enough to be in that room watching this live interview with Zach, uh, one of the amazing things you missed is Zach reenacting all the scenes with the puppeteers. Like, you know, he, tells you like hey you know certain scenes had to be shot from certain angles and waist up and all that and he did a great representation that had us just all laughing of how you know the puppeteers were walking us beside him or in front of him you know trying to control gizmo while he's in his backpack or whatever it's just hilarious but man you missed some good stuff there well hopefully you can relive some of it now with us on episode 287 our christmas eve episode with zach galligan Live from Season Screamings, now playing. Steven Spielberg presents Gremlins. Billy Pelser has a nice home. Billy, is that you? Yeah, Mom, it's me. A nice job. A nice girl. If you're not doing anything this Thursday night, maybe you'd like to uh, go out on a date with me? I'd love to. And loving parents. Who are about to give him? You're gonna like this. No, no, no! Don't shake it. We're gonna have to open it now. Won't wait till Christmas. The most unusual gift <laughs> he ever got. What is it? No. It's your new pet. Come on, Barney, be a good dog. My dad gave it to me. But there are a few things to keep in mind. If you expose it to the light, you may hurt it. If you get it wet, it will multiply. All that from water? They got wet? Yeah, plain water. And most important, no matter how much they beg, 
never, never let them eat after midnight. Because when they do, they change. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Season's greetings, everyone. Happy holidays. My name is Trevor. I'm Lauren. I'm Leo. And we are Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew podcast. So we're their flagship interview podcast. And uh, you can also check us out uh, everywhere you get your podcasts and on BDTV, which is now streaming on Roku, Screenbox, and a bunch of other cool places. You can see a video version of the podcast. So today, uh, enough about us. I mean, joining us on the season screaming stage is an award-winning actor and director whose charm, talent, and likability mixed with an extraordinary sense of comedic timing, as well as being a gifted dramatic performer has made him transcend the screen and into pop culture itself. His debut feature role was in Joe Dante, Steven Spielberg, and Chris Columbus's iconic Gremlins in 1984. He followed that up with projects including opposite Molly Ringwald and River Phoenix and surviving before heading to Broadway on behest of the world's most successful playwright, Neil Simon, in the Tony Award-winning Biloxi Blues. He gave us arguably one of the most fun horror films ever made in Waxwork. Returned to the role of Billy Pelter in Gremlins 2 that made an indelible mark on cinema through its wild inventiveness and game-changing special effects. He has since gone on to over 76 filmed credits, made up of the most celebrated movie and TV projects of all time, from Tales from the Crypt to Law and Order, Seventh Heaven to Star Trek and the Hatchet franchise, and he continues that trajectory to this day most recently in the unprecedented 23-time award-winning horror indie Bad Candy that just came out. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the legend Legendary Zach Galligan. Was that introduction for me? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm like, who's this guy talking about? I don't even recognize who this guy's talking about. Giz, and Gizmo. On. Yeah, Giz. Whoa. <laughs> we don't want that too close, do we? <laughs> Put that down there, just a little far away from this gentleman here. Come on, buddy. Zach, welcome, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We're huge fans of yours, everybody in this room. So take us just back to the beginning before we get into Gremlins on just your discovery of the acting bug and how you got into the whole thing. Wow. Well, uh, let's see. So starting around when I was maybe five or six, I would do the sort of school plays. And, And sometimes I would just get put in them. I wasn't even really trying to, like, be in them. So I think the first thing I did was like a play about whaling, you know, like whaling ships. And right. I was the captain of the whaling ship. It's an ship. ambitious play. It was an ambitious play. We had all sorts of blocks on the ground, you know, like the blocks that you build stuff with. And we made a little makeshift ship of it. And I was the captain of the ship. Luckily, I booked the lead on the first go around. So that was a good, good, good sign. And I think I had something. I think I had one line, you know, there was mostly narration. They were like, and so they came close to the whales and the ship was getting closer to the great white whale or something like that and I had to stand up and go hang on boys get ready for a Nantucket sleigh ride which is what happens when you harpoon the whale and it takes your your boat with you they call that a Nantucket sleigh ride so that was my first line ever in a play I think it was kindergarten or first grade something like that and then I did school plays for years and then I went to summer camp in upstate New York I did plays there 
And so I was just doing a lot of theater, and I was doing all the typical theater that you would imagine. I was doing Danny Zuko in Greece. Hey, that's my name. Don't wear it out. Um, you know, and Jesus and Godspell and uh, Pippin and Pippin, all of the late 70s, early 80s kind of plays and musicals that you would expect to do. And um, one day I'm sitting in my lunchroom, and my drama teacher, whose name was Dr. Blake Leach, comes up to me and he goes, Zach, I would just like to introduce you to this woman. She's very interested in meeting you. She's heard very, very good things about what you do on stage. He was a very, like, you know, he was a very, very serious drama teacher. And so he took me over and he introduced me to this woman named Julia Taylor. And I didn't know it at the time, because I didn't know anything. Um, that she was arguably the most powerful casting director in New York City, which is where I'm born and raised, and I was in, in Manhattan at the time. And so she was like, hi, so I hear you like acting and this and that. So I came in and I auditioned for a movie called No Small Affair. Now, No Small Affair, there was two attempts at it. The first attempt was with Matthew Broderick, who eventually beat me out for the part, and Sally Field, it was directed by a director named Martin Ritt. And he actually, unfortunately, had like a heart attack on the set. So they had to shut down production. So they shut down the movie and did it again in 1985 with John Cryer and Demi Moore. And that one is the one you can rent at the video vault now when you go there. Oh, my God, I just dated myself with renting stuff at the video <laughs> vault. <laughs> What's a DVD? Um, so you can go and you can see that movie wherever you can get it on streaming networks everywhere. Um, so I tried out for that, but I didn't get it. But she took a Polaroid picture of me and she stapled it to a piece of cardboard, like the kind of cardboard you get when you get a shirt back from the laundry. You know, that like makes the shirt all stiff and everything like that. She wrote my vital statistics on it and she put it, as she told me later, she put it in the, her cabinet, like file cabinet of people who like aren't professional actors because I didn't have any representative, I didn't have an eight by 10, I didn't have anything. So uh, about 10 months later, I'm at my girlfriend's house up in Scarsdale and I get a phone call and it's like, Julia Taylor would like to see you again. I'm like, who's Julia Taylor? They're like, the casting director who wanted to see you for No Small Affair. Oh, right, yeah. Oh my gosh, she wants to see me again? Well, it turns out she opened her file cabinet and started going through things and she's like, oh yeah, he was pretty good when he tried out for No Small Affair. So they were doing this movie called Tempest which was a modern kind of updating, you know, of Shakespeare's The Tempest with John Cassavetes, Jenna Rollins, Raul Julia, and Susan Sarandon. And John Cassavetes is going to direct it. Now, incredibly, even though I wasn't really into acting or wanting to be an actor, I was a huge movie buff. So I knew who all these people were. I knew who John Cassavetes was from The Dirty Dozen. I knew who Susan Sarandon was from Rocky Horror Picture Show, etc., so they brought me in to try out, and my very first audition, very first audition for this project, and probably second audition in my life, I walk in, there's Paul Mazursky, the director, and Susan Sarandon sitting there. And I'm like, what is happening to me? And they're like, we'd like to read with a number of actresses if, you, you know, if that seems like fun for you. And I was like, uh... Well, can I read with this actress right here? Susan Sarandon, like, yeah, no, we mean you, more your age, you know, to see if you have any chemistry with them. I'm like, sure. So the first person they brought in was Phoebe Cates. 
And this is like the most legendarily astounding looking person you ever see in your life. And I was like, I think I like this profession. She walks in, she's like, hi. So I read with her, read with a few other people, still didn't get it. Went up probably four or five more times, still didn't get it. Finally, Julia Taylor calls me up and she says, look, you came really, really close. In fact, it came down to you and the guy who's eventually gonna get it, Sam Robards. And I said, oh wow, that's really disappointing because the whole process eventually took four or five auditions and probably about three or four weeks. I thought for sure I was gonna get it. When you're 17, you're like, I got this. You know, you're so confident. She's like, you didn't get it, but I really think that if you got more auditions, you could probably book something. And I said, well, how do I get more auditions? She said, well, you get an agent. And I said, what's an agent? She said, that's a guy who gets you auditions. I said, well, how do I get an agent? I'm just trying to figure everything out. She goes, well, normally it's very, very difficult, but I'm gonna make it easier for you. Can you put your mom on the phone? My mom's standing next to me and she's like, hello? Yes. Yes, I see. Interesting. I understand. She hands me the phone back and she says, you have one year and walks out of the room. And I get on the phone. She's like, take down the pen and pencil. I'm going to give you some appointments for agents and you can go and meet them and see which one you like. So I, I went out and I didn't know it at the time, but I met the three biggest agents in Manhattan. I picked the one that I like and I got represented. And that's how I started my career as an actor. Unbelievable. Wow. So as a huge film buff, obviously at that time, E.T. had come out, Jaws had come out. Well, not, not when I was 17, but the Raiders had. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and Close Encounters and Jaws and you sure. And so the script is written by Chris Columbus, which is his second feature. He had done a movie called Reckless at the time. And this was, this was his next movie. It was this script that Steven Spielberg bought because he said it was the most original thing he'd ever read. And that was the script for Gremlins. And they got Joe Dante to direct it from his work in The Howling. And you find out about this project somehow. How did it, how did it go with the audition process for Gremlins? Well, I actually had to ever so slightly correct my introduction. Uh, when I got the, uh, the agent, the first feature that I did actually was a very, very strange and unreleased movie called Nothing Lasts Forever. And Nothing Lasts Forever, I thought, was going to be my big breakthrough because it was all the SNL people. It was produced by Lorne Michaels. It was directed by Tom Schiller, who did the black and white movie Schiller's Reel. And it was going to star John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, and Bill Murray, in, well, in cameos. And so I booked that part, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm working with Belushi and Murray and Aykroyd. I was like, this is unbelievable. Wow. And then John Belushi passed away in March of that year, a month before we started shooting. So I ended up working with Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and shooting the movie. At 18, it was actually my senior project at high school. It was an MGM feature. And my, my schoolmates were like, that's so unfair. You know, they were so, they wanted to be happy for me, but they were so bummed. They were just so envious and like, whatever. So anyway, so I did that movie. So that's kind of got me on like the list of like people, sort of up and coming people. So after I did that movie and I got on sort of like the casting directors, like the, this is one of the guys that we should see first list. I would started going up for all sorts of things and came very close. Like there are all sorts of movies that I find difficult to watch today because I almost got them, like war games. 
Yeah, Matthew Broderick. Yeah. Here we go again. Um, uh, uh, you know, Broderick was my nemesis for a long time. <laughs> you ended up replacing like, him in Billixy Blues, right? I ended up replacing. Well, first, this is the crazy thing. I, I got super close for Brighton Beach Memoirs, and then he got it, and they offered me the understudy for Brighton Beach Memoirs. And I went like this, I ain't understudying nobody. I was just like all 17 and super cocky. I was like, who needs Broadway? You know what I mean? It was like, if you look back, it was absolutely insane that I would think this way. So I actually had one meeting where Emmanuel Eisenberg, who's the producer of Brighton Beach Memoirs, and Gene Sachs, the director, sat down with me at some deli somewhere and begged me. They were like, please, please, I want you to reconsider and come and do the understudy for Matthew in, in Bright Beach Memoirs. And I was like, can you guarantee that I will have at least one performance of Bright Beach Memoirs on Broadway? Or will I just understudy? Like, is there a chance that I'll never actually do the play? And they looked at each other because they're very honest people and they were like, we can't guarantee that. I'm like, I'm out. I can't do the play, not doing it. And then the next week, I booked Gremlins, and I was like, see? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you look back at some of the insane things I did when I was just this cocky 17-year-old, because you get success early, and you're like, I can do this. This is no problem. You you know, you just have this... Well, you're a kid. You have no idea what you're doing. You have no perspective. You have no idea how difficult the business is. It's just coming to you so quickly and so naturally, you figure it's just never going to end. So, yeah, so uh, I don't even know where I am now. Where am I? You're, you're, you're gremlins. <laughs> you're gremlins. You no. got gremlins, and you had to, had to audition. So I got gremlins, and I had to, I had to audition, and, but that just basically came about because once I had done la- Nothing Lasts Forever, I was just being called in for everything. So I didn't get War Games, didn't get, you know, Breakfast Club, I didn't get, uh, you know, a bunch of the movies. There were Outsiders, didn't get that. You know, came very, very close to things, but just ended up not getting them. Uh, and then Gremlins came along, and I always, from the second that I got the audition sides, because I didn't get the script, I got notes, they wouldn't show me anything, would show anybody anything, um, except the, the, um, the, the scene where I ask Phoebe out on a date, because that really doesn't have anything to do with Gremlins or Mogwai or this guy or anything like that. So it was just a, just a like, hey, would you like to, you know, go out and have dinner with me type of scene. So... I, I went in the first time and I read for the casting director. She was like, great. I went in the second time to meet Joe Dante and Mike Fennell, who was like the, the actual sort of producer, nuts and bolts producer of the movie. Steven Spielberg is more the executive producer. He was sort of going like, uh, I'll make this casting directions and I'll fix the script here and I'll oversee things. But basically you guys go do it, you know? And, uh, I went in to meet Joe Dante and, and Mike Fennell, and Joe Dante wasn't there because he hates flying and was, like, plane sick. So I just met Mike Fennell and read for him, and he was like, that's great. We come with a mix and match session. And I was like, you mean, like, where I read with actresses to determine if we have any chemistry? And he's like, yeah, that, that's great. We're going to do that on Thursday. I said, that's good because I'm going down to Fort Lauderdale for spring break on Friday. So it works out perfectly. <laughs> so I went in... And who do they pair me with for the mix and match session? Phoebe Cates. So it's exactly like two years earlier at Tempest. And I see her and I go, hey. She goes, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. How have you been? I'm like, great. 
and if possible, she's prettier. And she has her hair back in a ponytail, a chewing gum. She's wearing her new newfangled sneakers I never heard of before called Reeboks, you know. <laughs> and, and she's just like super cutting edge and adorable and just the prettiest thing. And by this point, she's been on the cover of Seventeen magazine and Fast Times. Everybody knows who she is. Drop dead gorgeous at 19. And I'm like... Wow, I'm thinking to myself, wow, I hope we get paired together. She looks at me and she goes, I hope we get paired together. And I'm like, I was just thinking the same thing. She's like, you want to read together? So if we get paired together, we'll be prepared. And I'm like, yeah, sure. So I start reading with her. We get through it once and she's really good. And I have a couple of choices I think are kind of good. And we get halfway through the second reading and Susan Arnold, the casting director, sticks her head out of the office door and she goes, Zach, Phoebe, which means like she's calling us in together. So we're like, uh, I guess we're auditioning together. Score, you know, because we just rehearsed together. So we go in, and back then, you got to remember, it's, you're talking March 1983 technology. So they have a, a, a video camera. It's like on a massive tripod, and it's this gigantic creature, you know what I mean? And it, the cable's going down into this VCR-type thing with these huge tapes that they put in and everything. It's not like, here's my phone, and I'm going to, you know? So they have Phoebe and I stand in front of this uh, screen. Uh, I, guess, I don't know what, what it was for, but I guess just a kind of a blank background. So we start just start doing this scene, you know, like, hey, how come you don't like Christmas? What am I, a leper or something? If you don't like Christmas, what's everything you see in the movie? So we're doing that scene, and um, I get down to the point where I ask her out for a date, and I had this, was really happy with this choice where I came up, that I came up with, that's in the movie, where I'm expecting her to say no, and then she says yes, and so I act super surprised, and then I have to fonz out and be like super, hey, wait, what's uh, Danny Zuko out? But of course you're going to say yes, kind of thing like that. So I'm like, really? That's great. Oh, wow. Well, well, we can talk about it later and just smooth all the details out and everything like that and try and get cool. So that worked very well, and I, we were happy with it, and the scene's over. And I look over at Joe Dante, who's standing behind the enormous, you know, videotape contraption, and I wait for him to call cut. And he doesn't call cut. I don't know what to do. I know one thing. You don't, st you don't say, can we stop? You, as an actor, you just keep going. <laughs> so I look at Phoebe, and I probably say something like, it's cold out, huh? And she's like, yeah, it sure is. More silence. Wow, this is a nice small town, isn't it? Yep, it's great. It's pretty small. <laughs> now we're ad-libbing. It's not really going anywhere, so I didn't know what to do. So I was like, kind of like, I give up. And I put my head on her shoulder, since she was right here. My head on her shoulder, and I sighed, and I went, <sighs> and I looked straight at the camera like, look how lucky I am being with the world's most beautiful woman, and I have no idea what to say next, and I give up, and I just, I'm in love with her, and let's, can we stop this? <laughs> and apparently... When I asked Joe Dante, I was like, hey, can you tell me how I got the part? Because whatever it is that I'm doing right, I want to do it more. So I get more parts. And he goes, well, apparently what happened, because Joe has a kind of squeaky voice, he goes, what happened was uh, we were looking at the tapes, and we were watching your scene with you and Phoebe. And the scene with you and Phoebe came up, and you put your hand on your shoulder, and you like gave this big puppy dog sigh. And S Stephen saw it, and he went, oh, my God, he's in love with her. <laughs> I don't need to see the rest of the tape and I don't need to see anybody else because this kid's not even going to be doing any acting. And he got up and he walked out of the room. Wow. And that's the long, long story about how I got the part in Gremlins. That's incredible. <laughs> yes.
And it's a true story, which makes it even better. <laughs> the Boo Crew will be right back. Are you hungry? Hungry as a gremlin? Here's gremlin cereal. Gremlins, gremlins, bite after bite. What a tasty way to satisfy a gremlin appetite. Gremlins is a deliciously sweet, crunchy cereal that satisfies the hungry little gremlin. That's in all of us. Gremlins, gremlins, bite after bite. What a tasty way to satisfy a gremlin appetite. Gremlin cereal is part of this complete breakfast. Gremlin, yum, yum. You get the full script, obviously. At this well, actually, point. here's the crazy thing. Let me just interrupt you here. Sure. They're like, so do you want to do the movie or not? I'm like, well, I'd love to read the script. They're like, no, you got to say yes or no. Oh, I said, wow. wait a second. I got to say yes or no without reading the script? They're like, correct. And I was like, well, how do I know what I'm signing up for? They're like, you don't. But you do know it's a Spielberg movie, and he just did E.T., and it's the most successful movie of all time. He also did Close Encounters and Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> so you know you're in good hands. <laughs> and if you say no, there are 10,000 people behind you, starting with Emilio Estevez, that will say yes. <laughs> and so I was like, uh, guess I'm doing it. They're like, guess you are. <laughs> so I basically signed on the dotted line, then got the script. And was like, oh my God, I get to do this, and I get to do this, and I get to bust, and I get to kiss Phoebe, and I get to blow up the movie theater. Spoiler, I blow up the movie theater. (laughs) Um, And I was like so unbelievably pumped. And the crazy thing was I had five, maybe six weeks before I even started shooting. So I had five weeks as a 19-year-old just to think about what you're going to do. It's like couldn't sleep. Bouncing around the wall room, I told my family. Family thought I was making it up. People are freaking out. No one can understand this. It's like next level everything, and it's like I'd never been to California. I was from New York City. I'd never never been west of the Mississippi. Well, that's not true. I went to Denver once, but so what? I'd never been to California. That's the real important thing. And I'd never been to I'd never been to Hollywood. And I can remember being on the plane, you know, taxiing in for LAX and seeing the Hollywood scene and go, uh, Hollywood sign and going, "Wow, it's the Hollywood sign." But wait, it's the Hollywood sign, and I'm going to do a movie for I don't know Steven Spielberg, <laughs> and I'm the lead, and I get to kiss Phoebe Cates. Did I mention I get to kiss Phoebe Cates? <laughs> Unbelievable. So, okay, so you got the script at this point. You kind of know what's coming. When you start getting to set and you start seeing these incredible creatures that were designed by Chris Wallace, what was your reaction? Was that, did it throw you? Were you worried about how you were going to portray a a sense of realism and that likability and whimsy that we love that you created with Billy? Well, I would say the first thing that happened was I went and I met everybody and I went to Chris Wallace's creature workshop and I started my initial, you know, dog training where I was bonding with Mushroom, the dog that plays Barney. Real name is Mushroom. Um, the character name is Barney. So I, the first day that I went there, I did a read through with Phoebe and then I did about an hour of bonding with Mushroom where I would give him treats and everything like that and throw the ball with him and then he would come up and kiss me in the face and then I would kiss him in the face and we'd kiss me in the face and I kiss him in the face and we love each other and that we I did dog bonding every day for about two weeks before we shot the movie um, to make sure that the dog would be basically all over me and in fact we kind of did the bonding too good 
I'm, I'm jumping ahead, but in the Christmas scene where I get it for the first time, the dog's all over Gizmo and all over me and stepping on me and, 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 and everything because he was just so excited and so comfortable. But anyway. Um, but as soon as I did all of those initial things, I went back. They, they had rented, actually, a, a, a place for me to stay in Los Angeles over by UCLA in Westwood on a place called Strathmore Drive. If you know your Westwood, then you know the little street I'm talking about, which also happened to be on Fraternity Row, <laughs> which was fun because I got to hear Michael Jackson's Beat It every 10 minutes, every hour for 24 hours for the entire shooting of Gremlins. Uh, and flash dance, what a feeling. <laughs> and a few other things, you know. Some of the songs just on constant repeat. Billie Jean, you know, it's the spring of 1983. So it was great, actually. Um, so I'm at this, so I would go home to my little, <coughs> to my apartment that they booked for me after the first couple of days, and I was just petrified. I was absolutely frozen with fear. I was like, I can't do this. I'm not a good enough actor to do this. I'm not even an actor. I'm like an imposter. I'm like, I've had full-fledged imposter syndrome. They picked me over these people who were Matt Dillon and this and that or whatever. Like, I can't do this. Like, I've done one movie before in an after-school special where I got VD. Like, <laughs> how, how can they think that I can carry a Spielberg movie? And I would go to bed and I would wake up in, like in a sweat going, I, I'm not going to be able to remember my lines. I'm going to be bad. Phoebe's not going to like me. She's not going to want to kiss me. Like, all of these terrible feelings like this. And I was like, the other part of me, you know, it was like the devil and the angel on the shoulder. I was like, you can do this. You can't do this. You suck. You can do this. You're amazing. And I just had all of these mental battles going on about like, can I or can I? I wasn't like, I can do this Spielberg movie. No problem. Like I was completely intimidated. So uh, to this day, I don't really know how I did it other than like, I have to do it. Like you got to do it. So I would just wake up and I would go and I would, I would try and spit my lines out and, and not be nervous. And actually, if you want to have fun tonight, you can go home and watch Gremlins. You can watch the very first scene we shot because most of you know that movies are not shot in sequence, right? You, you, sometimes you start with the final scene of the movie first. And then you go back and maybe you'll do the, first, the second scene in the movie on the last day. So it's all, very few movies are shot in sequence. The only ones that I know that are shot in sequence are like My Fair Lady was shot in sequence, Mad Max Fury Road was shot in sequence. Probably a few others. So the first scene I had to do was um, Dick Miller coming out of Dory's Tavern and he's all drunk and he's like, W-W-I-I, that scene. So luckily I only had one, one line in that, which I think was Mr. Futterman going home, you know? So I was like, I can handle one line. So I did that, that was fine. And then the next scene was again with Dick because we wanted to sh do something called shooting him out, which is just you, you do take all the actor's scenes because he was not available and we're just gonna do all Dick scenes the first two or three days. And then you can send him on his way and he can do other stuff. So we're gonna shoot Dick out, which sounds... <laughs> Sounds rude, but it actually was quite polite for Mr. Miller. Um, so we shot him out, and my first real scene with lots of dialogue is the opening scene where you see me in the car, where my car won't start. And he's like, I haven't seen you in the cartoons with Smiling Abner, Little Abner, and Smiling Jack, that scene. And if you go back and you watch it, you can see that I'm actually sort of stuttering in the scene. I'm like, well, <laughs> Mr. Futterman, you know, I can't. And it's not because I'm making choices. It's because I'm terrified. 
I'm terrified I'm going to make a mistake. I'm terrified I'm not going to remember my lines. I'm terrified that it's not going to go well. I'm terrified I'm going to get fired. And so eventually after I got that first scene out of the way, I calmed down a little bit so that I could do a little bit of better performance. And just to put a good cap on this story, about 10 days into the shoot, shooting, I did some scene, can't remember which one, and I got up and I sat down and I still sort of went like, got through that one. I think it was the Mrs. Deagle and the dog and the, oh, I'm so sorry, and he knocks the, the, the snowman's head onto the thing. And Judge Reinald comes out and goes, you putz, um, which was an ad lib by Judge, by the way calling me a putz so and there was a lot of ad-libbing going on in, in the thing and I was that was new for me too like imp, I was like what's improvisation you know like I didn't know what that was I just learned my lines and spat them out so I sat down on day 10 and I sit down and, I'm like, and one of the grips comes over to me and he goes hey man what's going on dude you look like you're like a little stressed out and I go well yeah dude you know I'm like just want to do a great job make everybody happy and I just you know I don't want to get fired and he goes dude you can't get fired. And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, dude, I don't know if you know how movies work, but it's like $80,000 a day. You're on day 10. They've spent about $800,000. I don't think they can even afford to fire you right now, dude. They're stuck with you. And I go, they can't fire me? He goes, bro, they cannot fire you. I go, get the out of here. Are you kidding me? He goes, they cannot fire you, dude. You're set. Once you make it past like day five or six, dude, you are set in stone, bro. They're stuck with you and Phoebe. I was like, score. Yes. And it was like I was Superman all of a sudden. I was like, I'm going to do this scene now. They can't fire me. It's perfect. So I do the whole movie like that. And to my horror, the following year, they start a movie called, which I tried out for, called Back to the Future. And they start doing it with another actor whose name I shall not name, out of respect to him. And they do six weeks of shooting with him and fire him. Oh! So the dude who told me that was 100% wrong. <laughs> but it didn't matter because I was like, yeah, I'm unfireable, Superman. Super Pelser is back on the set. <laughs> And so I went and I did the rest of the movie with so much false confidence that I couldn't get fired. And of course, they replaced this person with Michael J. Fox and who went on and became huge. And it was like Michael J. Fox mania and everything like that. But I thought I was invulnerable because this grip came over and was like, dude, you got no problem, brah. That was that I was like, why, I was like, why are you, you calling right? me a brassiere? Why are you calling me bra? He's like, no, dude, bra, like brother. I was, oh, sorry, I'm from New York City. Um, I'd never heard bro, dude, bra, any of that till I came out to California. I was like, what language are you guys speaking? It's, it's Spicoli. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, you throw all that in there and, and your lack of confidence leading up to that point. And then you put in these, these creatures that you have to interact with. Yeah, sure. What were the mechanics of just working with those? I mean, there's times when you've got Gizmo in your backpack and it's still moving. And this is pre-CGI where they couldn't erase. Remember those, buddy? Those were some tough ones, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, they were tough. Um, so how was all that done and how did you feel reacting to it all? Well, I mean, so there were definitely in the in sort of the pre-production phase, which was really only about maybe two or three weeks that Phoebe and I had before we started shooting. And um, 
you know, Chris Wayless, who, who, who basically, I mean, it's so funny because you got to understand, you have to sort of remember what my perspective was. I was 19, okay? So I was a sophomore at college and, you know, uh, and Chris Wayless is 28. So my feeling was like, wow, he's old. He's an adult, you know, he's 28, you know? And he just seemed much, so much more adult than myself. Although Phoebe seemed quite adult too. Cause you know, she was like, do you know Andy Warhol? I was like, no. She's like, yeah. So Andy and I were at Xenon the other day in Studio 54 and I'm like, what's a Studio 54, you know? <laughs> So she was so much more sophisticated because she had been a model since she was like 15 and she had met all of these like, you know, society people and stuff like that. I was just a goofy kid. You know what I mean? And so Chris Wayless was like, so I'm going to kind of walk you through how we're going to do the gizmo thing because that's by far the most complicated. The gremlins are just going to be like operated by their people and you just have to react normally to them and freak out and, and do what you're going to do as an actor. But the gizmo, you're going to have a lot of interaction with, so we should probably focus on that. I'm like, absolutely. So he's like, we're going to do a combination of things depending on what the scene requires. So we put him in a backpack so you don't have to have him strapped to your body all the time. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait a second, strapped to my body? What do you mean? He goes, well, for the scenes where you have to hold him in your hand, we have all the cables coming out of his butt. And they had about 10 or 12 cables coming out right out of his tush. And they would, they, they would come out and each one of the cables would be attached to what could only be described as a joystick. And I said, so what are, what are the joysticks for? And he goes, well, here, we'll give you a little demonstration. So all of his, you know, people he'd hired, the sort of, I guess you'd call them puppeteers, they'd each grab a joystick and like one person would do the joystick and one person would be doing the arms, so one person would be doing the eyes, one person would be doing the nose, one person would be doing the ears, and they broke it down into like facial and body parts. And they had been practicing for weeks to make it move as one so that it looked like a realistic puppet. Now, remember, he didn't talk. There was no Howie Mandel. That hadn't been cast yet. By the way, spoiler, Howie Mandel is the voice of Gizmo. <laughs> also, fun fact, never met Howie Mandel to this day. Whoa. Spoken to him on Twitter, but like I do my thing and he goes and does his thing in the voice booth months after the movie's over and never met the dude. How is that possible? It's so bizarre. <laughs> People are always like, what's Howie like? I'm like, your guess is as good as mine. The only time I've ever communicated with him was this year after we did the Mountain Dew commercial uh, together and we spoke, they sort of communicated to each other on Twitter. But I still have never met the man, never shaken his hand. Probably not a big odds of that happening. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that in there. It's kind of funny. And, uh, and yeah, so, so anyway, getting back to the effects, he's like, so a lot of times you have in the backpack, that'll be remote control. So we'll just be remote controlling him there. And then sometimes there'll be things where you'll pick him up from one table and you'll put him down on another and we can just use like... Um, it was like a, kind of like a gizmo that just sort of moved like this. Like it squirmed a little bit, almost like really this toy does. And that's all you need was a little sensation of movement to show that it's a live creature to take him from one table to the other. He goes, but the real problem is going to be when you have to hold him in his hands and inter interact with him. And I go, okay. And he goes, so the cables, we can't see them. So you're going to have to hold him in his hands. And we've spoken to the costume and wardrobe designer, and you're going to have to wear long sleeve shirts, which is fine since it takes place at Christmas. It's winter and it's cold and everything like that. But the cables are going to come out and they're going to go down your sleeve and we're going to attach the cables. We're going to tape them to your body. 
and they're going to go run down the length of your body and they're going to come down to you about your ankle and then we'll cut a hole in your sock and the cables will come across the room to the 12 people who are controlling Gizmo. So if you go back, here's another fun thing you can do when you rewatch Gremlins tonight, hopefully, which you will, or if you happen to see it again, you'll notice they never shoot me from the waist down when I'm with Gizmo. And that's because if you saw what was happening from the waist down is I've got Gizmo and I'm standing here and I'm walking and I'm tr the cables are coming out the floor and I'm trailing 12 people behind me who are walking like this with the joystick crouching down under my waist going like this. <laughs> Following me, watching a monitor there that's showing me Gizmo and I'm talking to him and rubbing his head and they're going, react, react, do the nose thing. Do the nose thing. Except there's only one of me and there's 12 of them walking behind me. And as they do the joysticks and the cables, you know, I have, I'm not a particularly hairy person, but I do have some hairs on my body. And there were little separations between the cables. And every time they would pull the joystick, the cable would close the separation on my flesh and on the little tiny hairs that run up and down my body from my entire body. So I'd be going, so Giz, let's go over to the table. The first couple of times, I'm like, because we have to. And I'm like, um, Chris, I'm getting pinched like mad from these cables. He's like, pretty much. <laughs> so wow. it took a, a while to kind of filter out the agony that I was going through when they did particularly violent reactions for Gizmo, you know? There'd be times when I'd be like, do I really have to scratch his head? Because I knew I was going to get pinched and pinched down here. So it, it was wild. But so there was no voices or anything like that, but there were, were mechanical sounds that Gizmo would make. So he'd be there and I'd be like, hey, buddy, how you doing? And scratch his head and he'd be like, and he'd be like, oh, you like that, huh? Let me scratch your head again. And Chris Wayless would be like, I want you to improv as much as possible. I'm like, there's that word again. And he's like, whatever you want to do, just treat it like it's an actual animal and it's an actual pet. You want to touch him on the nose, touch him on the nose. We'll react. You want to scratch his head, it's fine. You want to pick him up and cuddle him, you can pick him up and cuddle him. Just don't show the wires. I was like, okay, okay. So I, would, I felt free to do stuff, and quite honestly, the gizmo was so good um, that after a while, I just felt like he was my pet. Yeah, I mean, he, it was just, it looked exactly like an animal, smelled kind of like glue most of the time, <laughs> but other than that, it was very, very lifelike. Um, and of course, there were also hilarious things that happened that I had no idea about that they didn't prepare me for. And I tell this story and everybody freaks out. But like, so they ha we had to work very fast and we had to do multiple takes. And my acting had to be really on point because if there was a good gizmo take and a bad Billy take, they were going to take the good gizmo take. They didn't care about my performance. So like, he's the star of the movie. It's called Gremlins. As Joe Dante said to me one time, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but the name of the movie is not Billy Peltzer's Adventure in Kingston Falls. <laughs> the title of the movie is Gremlins. So they're going to be the focus. I was like, got it. Um, 
<laughs> so now, now you're acting with uh, Gizmo and the Gremlins and Stripe and, and of course you have this fantastic supporting you know, cast and you have Corey Feldman and Jonathan Banks shows up as you know. Now, what was the scene where you just figured it out and said, wow, we are actually capturing magic. This is something special. Wow, that's a good question. Um, I, I think we really, I think everybody, as difficult as it was, because there was a lot of problems that happened during it, um, but the scene where I get Gizmo as a Christmas present, you know, and then they lower the lights and I open it up for the first time and he goes, and he comes out of the box with his little paws and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And the dog is freaking out. And if you watch the movie closely, the dog licks, licks Gizmo's ear because the dog is convinced that Gizmo is a real creature. I mean, the dog was 100% convinced, which we all took as a very good sign. So we thought to ourselves, we can fool an animal with as keen a sense as a dog into thinking that Gizmo was, it was actually alive. We think, we think we really got, you know, something here. And then on that day, Gizmo was working really, really well. Because sometimes he would break down and, you know, I'd be doing a scene with him and he'd be like, and his, like, his head would snap off. And you'd be like, okay, I think we've got a problem here. You know? <laughs> and then Chris would come over and he'd be like, oh, dear. Oh, gosh. Oh, my. He's dressing out. And Joe would be sitting in his chair. Joe never, ever got upset about anything. He'd be like, way less. What are we looking at here? And he's like, oh, gosh, his head, I don't know. He's like, just give me hours, Wayless. What are we looking at? And he's like, I don't know, four and a half, five, five-hour break, everybody. And then they'd sew Gizmo's head back on or whatever they had to do. So on this particular day, the dog got so excited, he stepped on Gizmo in the box and ripped Gizmo's ear off of his head. So he ripped his ear off of his head, and you could see all the little sprockets and, you know, cogs and things inside that. And Chris came over and did his usual, oh, no, oh, dear. Way less. What are we looking at? Eight hours. Eight hours. So there was an eight-hour break in that scene. So half the scene was shot in the morning, and half of the scene was shot probably about 5 or 6 or 7 p.m. right before we were, we were breaking. And it was, all, it was all split up. And for eight hours, I had nothing to do. So Corey and I, Corey Feldman, who was 11, went over to Spielberg's office, which was about two blocks away from the stage and left around the corner. And Stephen had pole position, food fight, millipede, and Ms. Pac-Man, I think, in his office, full-size arcade games. He was away doing Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So basically, I spent um, most of Gremlins kicking Corey Feldman's ass at food fight. <laughs> Nice. So, I was like, you're 11, you can't play this game. <laughs> he never, I just saw him last weekend at Steel City Con in Pittsburgh. I was like, how are you doing at Food Fight? He's like, why won't you let that go? <laughs> so here at the Boo Crew, we love screen use prompts. So I have to ask about this. Did they let you keep anything from the production? Well, you know, it's interesting because, yeah, I managed to keep a couple of props like the sword that I cut the gremlin's head off. Spoiler, I cut a gremlin's head off. And then also um, the baseball bat from the chainsaw scene where, where I'm fending, attempting to fend Stripe off with the chainsaw. So I kept a couple of those things. But the thing that was really amazing about it, um, especially when we did Gremlins 2, was by Gremlins 2, I had gotten, you know, more successful and actually had started making some money and, and you know, I, I'm from Manhattan, didn't know how to drive a car. 
The, all through Gremlins, I'm in Westwood, and the reason why they put me in Westwood is like, kid doesn't have his license, he's from Manhattan, takes the subway, doesn't know how to drive a car, he can at least walk down to the shops in Westwood and, you know, go to Mayame Falafi and uh, 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 La Monica's Pizza and Braxton and all this from the boo crew.com tales from the boo crew on facebook and instagram follow us on twitter at tales from the boo the boo crew is lauren and trevor shand and leone d'antonio the boo crew is produced by lauren shand chopped and sliced by trevor shand the boo crew is a tsp creation part of the bloody disgusting podcast network bye a bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy, or disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.